0: It's Millie here from the Livestock Collective back with another episode on the Livestock Leaders podcast. Today I am chatting to Annabelle Coffin of Yarri Station which is situated near Port Headland in Western Australia. How are you today Annabelle? Very well
1: thanks Millie and thanks for having me on. I really value what you guys are doing with the Livestock Collective.
0: Thanks Annabelle and it's great to have you on board as well. I'm really looking forward to this episode. To crack things off, we do start each episode with the same question and that is what are three words you would use to describe yourself with?
1: I'm I'm going to put a little bit of a twist to this and and talk about my top three values. Although it's not always me, it's what fills my cup and generally it's what my mates are, my really close mates. And that's uh, number one, being authentic to who you are. Two, having integrity and
0: having some grit. Thanks Annabelle and we're just going to dive straight into it because I have no doubt that those values are going to shine loud and clear with the rest of the story that we're going to share today. So Annabelle, in 2008 I believe you were awarded a Nuffield scholarship. Um, for those of the audience who might not know what Nuffield is, can you please tell us? Yeah, um,
1: Nuffield's a, an amazing program that um it runs across the world in most Commonwealth countries and, and some others as well. actually started in England. Um, and it basically gives an opportunity for farmers in Australia to study a topic that they're passionate about, go overseas and travel all over the world and study that topic and, and come back and spread it through the the um, Australian agriculture to, to make it better. That's the idea of the scholarship and that's a. One of the most amazing opportunities that anyone could be offered in the agricultural um, industry, if you ask me.
0: Yeah, I know a few Nuffield scholars and their stories, um, especially from that 12 months that you spend overseas are just incredible and what you're all achieving is fantastic. So we're delighted that you are coming on board to chat about it because your topic is one that is very relevant to the Livestock Collective and how we first started. Um, can you share with us what topic you chose um, and why you chose it?
1: Yeah, so it was a while ago now, um, back in 2008. I was quite young back then. I still am now, but particularly young. And I, I chose to study the Australian live export trade and, and mainly looking at the, the future and beyond, I, I called it. So looking at to to see what was going to happen with the trade and basically was there a future for our family business to to keep um, focusing on on servicing that trade or was there an actual need to move away from it? And that that mainly came from a, a lot of, I guess, talk at the time that the live trade would be over and done within 10 years and that was back in 2008. And not not so much due to animal rights issues, more due to uh, changing economies in the countries, so, so that there wouldn't be a need for live animals. So I had a lot of quite influential people telling me this, and I just got really curious about it. And uh, and I just thought, well, what a perfect opportunity to put in for a nuffield, go out there and actually live and breathe it, and ask the questions to see, really, you know, if if this. Theory about the trade was actually right, or, or was there a future? And and what sh- what should we be looking for
0: and looking to change it in the future? And it was yeah over ten years ago now, and the industry has certainly progressed. And before we dive into what you actually found, you are from a station that exports animals. Do you think there was a degree of bias? Like how did you approach this so that you could research it with a, a open
1: mind yeah and look it was something that it was that rested thoroughly on my shoulders but I I was actually young enough to have that open mind I was a partner in our business but I I wasn't under the burden of debt that I probably am now that I'm a full owner and you know Mm -hmm. and the bank and I own the place I don't I didn't have that pressure back then I was a free bird really and and although I was very passionate about the topic Mm -hmm. I certainly, I feel that I had a enough of an open mind to get a feel for that, and I, I was a little bit of a devil's advocate as I travelled. I did ask a lot of questions that that kind of you know counteracted what a lot of people were saying about the trade and why it would keep going, and and I um and I tried to write my report in in that sense as well. So I, I you know obviously I was I was a part of the trade and. I wanted to, to see that it was going to going to do a good job in the future and go ahead. However, I, I put myself in a situation where if I came back with the answers that it was correct and the trade would be gone in 10 years, well, then we move on and, and we work out what we're going to do with our lives.
0: Yeah, and um, thank you for that candid response. I think it takes a degree of um, being open minded from both ends, no matter where you sit um, within the industry or outside the industry, to form a sufficient opinion. So, thank you, Annabelle. I have no doubt that you conduct yourself with amazing integrity. And I'm so looking forward to hearing what you actually found. So, you looked at options for live export. If there was a future, and if so, how do we do it? And if not, what other options do we have? Um, Can you tell us what you found?
1: Yeah, so as I travelled around, I went into, into Southeast Asia and spent a lot of time there, and then I spent a lot of time in the Middle East as well. So Southeast Asia was more looking at the cattle trade, and obviously the Middle East, a little bit of cattle, more sheep. And within that time, I just sort of kept asking myself and everyone else the question why live and and will will it exist in in the future and why does it exist and also you you kind of had to look back to look forward to why it started and and why people uh, import live animals and what's fresh meat what's chilled meat and what's frozen meat and so the first question I asked was why live and then I started to kind of dig deeper once you learn from people and, and realize there's very there's three clear markets over there within within meat and that's fresh chilled and frozen and i guess that was one of my biggest learnings it sounds pretty simple but you know most things are if you break them up and 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 that's exactly why the the live trade does exist due to the, those three segments and and also it's also very complex a complex answer as well. So, and, and when I say complex, I mean something that you, you can't solve simply. So you, you have to keep asking or keep having a go at something, and then move from one stage to the next. So, yeah. So that's that's kind of what I asked for. Twelve months, I lived and breathed the trade, and went around and and just tried to keep coming back to that question of why
0: it exists, and and where is it heading in the future. Yeah, before we get in, into the future, let's talk about the history that you just mentioned um, for Australian exports, both live um, and children frozen. Yeah, it,
1: I, I did spend a fair bit of time researching the history of the trade because I don't think that you can really learn about where you're going in, unless you look back. And also there was a little bit of pressure on, on me to, to answer some questions and one of those questions was, the live trade is basically ruining the processing sector and that's why there's no more abattoirs left in the north and that that is actually you know putting pressure on our domestic system and i I was quite well i was intrigued to see what that was about really so what, what i learned from my research was that live and frozen has been happening since the late 1800s we actually sent frozen meat to England in the um, the late 1800s, which is pretty cool, and it arrived safely. And we also sent out live animals across the world as well. So these things, you know, you know, have been happening for a long time. They obviously increased the live trade increased a lot in the in the 70s and 60s and 70s. Um, and it, you know made some massive changes in the north and, and also some and massive changes in the sheep industry as well. But the first thing was that frozen and, and live has been happening for a long time. It's not like it's not like a dinosaur trade. What I mean by dinosaur trade is that it hasn't been going on forever and just traditional. It's these two markets have been working together for a very long time. That's that's important to note. The other big finding I found that most abattoirs, unfortunately in the north, were closed down before the trade started off. And and that's actually another reason why the trade really got going in the north with cattle is because there was a lack of, there was really a lack of markets, and the, the whole industry was very depressed and going backwards at a rapid rate. Yeah. So yeah, it's a really interesting read, and um, it it also just goes through the the history of the pastoral industry in the north, and and how it really did the live trade for cattle particularly really did turn that whole industry around
0: yeah and I think it was at at the moment we we say that argument like why can't we build more abattoirs in the north is that feasible is there a consistent enough supply of cattle for that to be an option
1: look and and might I add that the processing sector in Australia is the most important industry because it's where most of our livestock go so and, and, you know, I have a branded beef business. I'm fully into processed in, in Australia as well. Um, I would love to see more abattoirs in the north. It's very difficult and you can see that abattoirs have been built since my trade, since my um, Nuffield. It, one of my recommendations in the report was that we still need abattoirs in the north. Well, since that time there was one built in Darwin that's been shut down, one built in the Kimberley's that is actually closed down, it's starting up again. But it's just, it's proof that it's hard yakka and building an abattoir doesn't solve a supply issue. It certainly helps it. And and the more avenues we have as producers, the better. But uh, basically the live trade and and the the abattoir, the the domestic processing trade, they really complement each other and they really help the livestock industry prosper and give us give us opportunity for different markets which then means that we exist and that we have better livestock and we put more money in our genetics so so in in the end it's actually really important to have both and and that's the way we always have to uh, think about it and that's the way I've shaped my business since doing the trade is that we want to have our our eggs in different baskets and we don't want to be tied into one so I don't want to put all my cattle in, into the live trade and be totally reliant on that but it, it's not the way to go and also I don't want to be totally reliant on the domestic market I want a bit of both.
0: Yeah certainly that market diversity and it was incredible to read and I do encourage anyone who is listening to this podcast to um, jump on I'll put the link to this um, report in the episode notes but but have a read and actually one thing Annabelle I found really fantastic from you growing up on a cattle station was that you also spoke a lot about sheep was that something did you uh struggle to get into that or you were you were fascinated by the sheep trade anyway as someone from a cattle station
1: oh no look it is equally as important to Australian producers it wasn't just about me doing that trade um and, you know, I no, I love the whole livestock industry. So, and, and it would, it, it, the, my scholarship wasn't just about cattle, it was about the livestock trade. So, we, we focused on sheep as well. I also ended up working in the Middle East after my scholarship contracting in the live export
0: program. So, I got a bit more of a feel of the sheep industry in that time as well. The sheep exports increase, we spoke about cattle before with the, the closing of processing facilities and whatnot. And the sheep industry, is a little bit different. We had the wool price decline, um, the oil boom in the Middle East. Can you tell me about how that um, really triggered live export of sheep to increase, particularly out of Western Australia? Yeah,
1: so it, it was very different. If you start breaking it down, the drivers of why the sheep are there were quite different to the cattle industry. I mean, if you put it big picture, it wasn't. But one of the main differences was the Middle East was actually, you can't value add to its stock apart from Israel and a little bit in Egypt. It is a total desert. Whereas the Southeast Asia, it's a jungle, it's tropical, it grows lots of byproducts. Whereas the Middle East, it is a proper desert. Like, not an Australian desert. There's nothing there. They cannot produce livestock. So they needed, they really needed to import uh, live animals, and they still wouldn't, will need to forever, ever more. yep The other thing was obviously in the Middle East, there was more tradition of eating sheep, because it's more of a drier region where, where sheep were were run, and there was a massive amount of religious festivals linked back to that. Whereas we th- I think that Southeast Asia were, were actually probably more inclined to eat cattle or buffalo due to the working traditions of. Asia and buffalos. So it, it was really interesting seeing the difference in that and the customs and and, and what people did. Um, and that really both countries or both regions, for them, it all came back to food security. So making sure that they had food for their people because there was I talked to a politician in uh, Jordan actually and there was a lot of take-homers from that guy and he was actually starting to get a bit frustrated with me because I was asking these questions over and over again and you could just start to see the look on his face of how ignorant I really was to their culture and what was happening. And he, and he said to me, there's two things in this country that we really need to keep civil cars out. number one priority. We haven't had to think about that in Australia because we've always had food on our plates. But number one for them was sugar and fuel and number two was fresh meat, not not chilled or frozen meat, fresh meat. And fresh meat in in these countries is very different to what we call fresh meat. So fresh meat for most Australian consumers is something that's generally chilled, hasn't been frozen yet, whereas fresh meat in, in importing countries is very different it hasn't gone through rigor mortis. It's generally been slaughtered that morning and it's warm still when they buy it, and and in in the Middle East, even people would actually buy their sheep, and um and enter a public abattoir and actually watch that sheep be slaughtered, and then they would walk out with their family with a whole shopping bag full of meat. It was it was an amazing process, and something that I'd love to see in Australia. You know, um, where you could walk in, buy your sheep, and then, you know, kids. Had a, a full of appreciation. They lived in a city, but they had full appreciation of where their meat came from and respect for that. animal not difference. So fresh over there is is fresh. It's been slaughtered that morning. It's still warm. Fresh for them is more like we would think about fresh fish or maybe fresh bread. And fresh fish is something that you just caught that morning. Or fresh fish is maybe you've gone to the wharf and you've bought it off a, a fishing guy that's just come in from the, the ocean. Well, fresh bread is something that you bake baked yourself or you've gone to the baker that morning and it's still warm. That is fresh for them in meat. And, and that's the difference that really marks why this whole trade exists and why we will never be able to substitute it with a chilled product. Even putting carcasses was slaughter the carcasses, put them on a plane and get them there the next day. That, that happens now, but that actually will never substitute a fresh product. And and that's something that we as Australians really need to respect and understand as to why this whole trade really exists. There's obviously other things behind it, so there's food security and, you know, as a politician, what would you rather, would you rather to know that you have 200,000 sheep which may last two months of supply for fresh meat for your people? Would you rather a contract with an Australian processor that they will be flying in in every, every morning? I know what I'd rather. I, I know that I would rather have those, those sheep in your country ready to slaughter every morning, knowing that they will be there to keep civil calm within people. And in Southeast Asia, obviously, there's even more of a complex reason. You know, it all comes back to fresh, but also it, it, it creates jobs for people, creates value because they, they actually value add to the cattle by putting more weight on them. They feed them. They create jobs. There's, massive, there's hundreds of thousands of people, I would say, employed because it's live, it's not, it's not a box of meat. They feed it. Someone has to drive it to the truck. Someone has to work in the auditorium. The little guy comes and collects the blood and makes pallets to then sell to the fish farmer. Someone pick, collects the gut fill and takes that and sells it as fertiliser. Someone collects the bones, you know, so there's all this value add for their country to create jobs. That was probably more clear in, in Southeast Asia to to be creating jobs whereas the middle east they were more about fresh there was a lot more money around so they weren't so much about creating jobs they were more food security for their people also very important in southeast asia as well but but, um, another driving force in that asian country compared to the sheep industry was the um was the need to value out and create jobs through those animals
0: so Annabelle, we've spoken about at home, that market diversity and how it drives up domestic prices. And now we're really focusing on the unique qualities of fresh, frozen, these different products in market. How does Australian products, how does it stack up overseas in these countries compared to other products um, from other countries that they import from?
1: So generally in Southeast Asia, i found that Australian cattle that were slaughtered in that country were called local pretty much so it it wasn't so much that's australian beef that's local say we couldn't grow seedlings for our veggie garden in australia we had to import them from another country but you could buy seedlings and you can put them in your garden and then you pick those seedlings i would actually if i couldn't grow if if i couldn't buy vegetables i would prefer to buy seedlings and grow them and and eat them because I would actually almost they're local. Whereas if I buy a a vegetable that had been grown overseas and and sent in, it's very different, even though the point where that plant started might not have been in Australia. So that's kind of how it is with those animals. They've, They've gone in, they've been a part of that culture, they've been fed the products local to that area and then put through the hands of local people and being sold by local people. So that's the big difference. So it's a very different anyway. Um, in the Middle East, people often bought sheep. They would come to on their Fridays. They would come and buy a sheep with their whole family and um, then they would take it to, into the public abattoir, which is usually linked to where they buy the sheep, and then they would walk away with the meat and they would usually know that was an Australian animal. And there was generally a sense that they preferred the Australian animal. It came from a healthy country. Our Australian sheep were lovely and healthy compared to some of the other importing countries like Somalia and that sort of thing where the sheep just did not look as healthy and, and happy. So there was all these little different markets, but they're all bouncing off each other as to why, why live exists. So in the chilled shells where it was imported directly from Australia, that that too was a that was a totally different market so that was again there was two sections of that one was it was superior and it cost more and they would they would buy that on their special occasions the other one was that it was actually cheaper this is more so this is more in the middle east it was cheaper and they would buy that during the week to keep them going and the more superior product was uh the, the live animal when they went and boil it themselves so there's not, like chilled in the market is then also changes to what it does versus frozen and fresh. Like they're kind of all bouncing around having different purposes depending on the people that are buying it. And that's, that's something that we as Australians need to remember and, and I love the quote, seek first to understand then be understood so it's not about just sending some live animals over there. There is so much to it and it's so complex when you start breaking down into little cultures and if it's middle class or if it's a poor family that that are trying to just survive versus a very rich Middle Eastern family and and, and they
0: serve different purposes for the people that are buying them. So what you're telling me, Annabelle, is what you found back in 2008 when you did all this travel and you did all of this study was that there is a future for live export, and there's a place in that um, with how it complements the frozen market as well as, and the chilled market. Is that what you're saying?
1: Correct. That live, live animals, there will always be a demand for them
0: to trade across the
1: world, and, and that's mainly because of this fresh meat uh, demand. And there, of course, will always be a demand for children frozen as well. And those three sectors of the market, we need to work together to, to do all three of them to serve our to serve our customers over overseas. So the processing market in Australia and the live trade market they're, they're working together to complement our demands of our customers overseas. And, and that is something that we just have to keep coming back to the basics of, of why we exist and, and why it and happens and how we work together.
0: So let's bring it back to home soil now. What can Australian supply chains do? I know that you're very passionate about what the Livestock Collective does and in, in what we're really passionate about is uniting that whole supply chain. And I know you're passionate about it as well. How do we do that? How do we make it clear and transparent?
1: Yeah, so of course, my well, my finding was there will always be a demand for a live animal because of the, the fresh meat de- de- um, demand and there was all sorts of reasons why fresh fresh meat exists in these countries the other thing was will will australia be a part of that market or not and and the main reason that we won't be is due to animal rights and welfare pressures so it we know that there'll be a demand but are we as producers and the country ready to to fill that demand and that all comes back to it back to markets and and this whole pressure from, from animal rights groups, which is, you know, as we've seen, it's a really serious issue that we as an industry have to take seriously and continue to strive and get better at things. So, and, and that's where I left it in my trade, in my, not my trade, my Nuffield, that yes, there's a demand for live animals for these reasons, but are we as a country going to fulfil that trade? And what, what do we have to do to remain ahead of, ahead of the game in this
0: area? And what do we have to do, Annabelle? How can, well, firstly, have you seen progress made in the last 10 or so years and what can we do from now to ensure that producers of both sheep and cattle in Australia can keep exporting our, our product that's in such high demand overseas?
1: Oh, obviously, massive changes, massive changes. And, and a lot of that comes back to the, the forced implementation of SCAS and, and the 2011 debacle. So that's obviously brought some positive changes in, into our our market I think for to be able to strive to go forward it also brought a lot of headaches as well with compliance and costs and all sorts of unnecessary things due to the fact that someone else designed that program industry didn't and um, I, actually I met with Lynn white from animals Australia in Jordan um, unexpectedly but a, a massive a massive learning point for me and she you know she pointed out a lot of very valid points about the trade. And, and one of them she said was if, if you closed the trade, made a closed trade, where where you control what abattoirs they went to and, and um, went from there, you, you'll probably be a lot safer. Now, if, if we had have thrown that to industry back then, everybody would have said absolutely no way, we are not doing that. Okay, so we're a reactive industry. However, if, if we want to learn from that, that whole change back then, is that we really need to be proactive and be on the front foot so that we as an industry can make make changes and we don't wait for others to make the changes for us and we be forced into a corner. And um, I think that's, I think our next step in the trade, which is something I actually recommended 10 years ago, was, was for producers to have far more connection with where the animals go. And that doesn't have to be owning them. Beyond our farm gate, we can still sell them at the farm gate, but but to have a connection beyond that, and with all the technology in place now, I really think that is our future. And and that's, I'll give you a an example. It could be an external program. We know our we know our importers quite well in other countries, and and don't get me wrong, this happens at the moment. There are some integrated supply chains, but as a whole, um, I would like to see it happen for the whole industry so we would sell animals beyond the farm gate off they go but then we we get constant feedback so and we follow them individually through the whole supply chain and you know it starts at the depot yard we get feedback from that we get loaded we get feedback from the export ship they get into the feedlots overseas we then get feedback of how how they're going we then get feedback of what abattoir they went to and and the outcome of that slaughter, and then we and then maybe one day we'll also we'll see what market they went to and, and all sorts of cool stuff like that. Um, I think as as a producer a producer we then have ownership and and far greater understanding about the whole process and and we also then have to take some responsibility into our own hands if our cattle haven't performed we'll hear about it and we have to change or if they're performing really well we also hear about it and and you know it's the, and we can stay in touch with the importer and say, look, it's really dry at the moment, we're probably not going to be able to send as many cattle and they're going to be lighter. And so it's just kind of constant feedback up and down the supply chain through an official supply chain project. That's what I'd really like to see. And 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 we hear the good, bad and the ugly. We hear if there was an SCAS breach in these countries. They hear what our yards are like and what our handling is like in, in, in importing countries so that it's all very transparent, and it's
0: in its continuous improvement. Yeah, I think that communication along the supply chain is essential. And for those of you who aren't as familiar with SCAS, we did have an SCAS manager join us. I think um, for episode one, that was Pat Cool. So make sure you go back and, and give that one a listen. But Annabelle, I want to give a bit more context to the crisis in 2011, if you're happy to talk about it. I know you've you've touched on it um, and you've touched on what was a result, how we reacted when we actually, there were outsiders looking in, like you were saying mid-white mentioning what we can what we can do to to close the supply chain what went down in 2011 and how has it impacted 10 years since
1: well look at the start I think it was just a very well-run campaign and a and a program that was powerful that made it look like that all Indonesian cattle were treated like that which wasn't the case and that's I guess that's what disappointed me most about that program I've just I, I had a fairly good idea of the trade i'd spend a lot of times and a few nights in the indonesian jungles in abattoirs and that's what disappointed me at the start was because the, the next day including producers many believe that that's what happened to their cattle like every single one of them which was not correct you know there's good and bad in every industry we saw the very bad in that program and and it, and the program was very powerful and well run to show and And it didn't it didn't put the the balance argument in there that this is a small amount of cattle in the supply chain and and this is what happens to the rest. So that that was the first thing. Also, you know a lot of Australians saw death and blood and all sorts of things that they'd never seen before. So there was a lot of outrage. And there was some horrific handling practices that nobody wants to see in a live trade, like it just is was horrific it didn't matter if there if it was only one in a thousand you wouldn't want that happening so there was all these kind of different issues happening about that program but it, the, the flux of it was it was well run it was powerful people were outraged and it, it wasn't it didn't tell a balanced story if you ask me and and you know our trade was cut off to the to Indonesia I don't have to go too far about that because it, it was a crisis at each end it was a crisis for producers and, and anyone in within that supply chain. It was also a crisis for the importing countries and all those guys over there that were supported by live animals. So we don't want to see that again. And from an industry point of view, one of our biggest learnings from this was that we need to be ahead of the game and we need to constantly be improving. And it doesn't actually matter if it's the live trade or domestic. We just need to be continually improving and making sure we're just getting better and better at this livestock handling stuff and welfare and seeing what, what's next in the, in the future. It might be in 10 years, but we work towards it. And I think that's what we can learn from that whole debacle as an industry. Probably from an Australian, a general Australian's perspective, what they could learn from that is don't always believe what you see on TV. It's not all the whole side of the story
0: isn't there and do your research.
1: Annabelle, like you had
0: a couple of years earlier, I spent a whole 12 months studying that and experienced literally the whole supply chain all around the world yourself. So I can imagine that was especially difficult for you, for you to see. But you've mentioned earlier about what outsiders looking in and improving animal welfare and how we can regulate it and improve. What I want to ask you is you speak about measuring animal welfare in your piece is measuring animal welfare on mortality, is that enough? And what else can we be doing? Uh,
1: look, no, I don't think it is. It, it's not just mortality. It's the animal's wellbeing. And and there's a, there's a whole series of little things that make a big difference. So it can't, it obviously, you know, it's a bit like a nursing home, isn't it? You can't just measure on how many people die or how many people live. What was their, what was their quality of life when they were looked after? So... It, it definitely has to, to keep coming back to that and um, and it has to come back to the farm gate as well. So it, it has to be a whole industry approach to, to make sure that that one, that we can prove actually that we deeply care about these animals, that we do, but it's not just me standing up saying I care for my animals and I, I, I stay within the laws of Australian animal handling. It's got to be a bit more than that I think in the future to, to prove what we're doing. And two, it also just helps the people, the, the rogues of the industry. It, it, it just will either ship them out or, or get them to, to lift their game a bit so that they don't pull us down. So there's two, two faculties that are, I think of measuring our welfare standards into the
0: future. Are we on track? Are we making progress, do you think, in this space?
1: Yeah, I think we are. Um, we can always do better and... I would like—I would really love to see an on-farm welfare program. I know there's, already, there's some around and some exist, but I, I want to see one designed by producers to, to measure real, real, real welfare indicators, and and that's practical and tangible. And it's not something that you tick boxes and put in your drawer. It's something that's within the culture of your place and apt to prove what we're doing, and modern and. Uh, and interactive.
0: You actually have some, some plans in this area, Annabelle. Do you, do you want to share them with us? Yeah, look,
1: I'm, I don't have, you know, it's, it's a vision. And I think, I actually think there's a lot of producers and a lot of people thinking about this now. So it's worth talking about because you don't want to duplicate things. But, but it's exactly what I just talked about, having a welfare program which would then link into a supply chain program to where we would see our cattle go and get feedback and and, and have a far greater integrated system. And and with that, there would be a very practical, tangible, modern, usable welfare program that we would run on our property that would help us show our integrity and our care for for our animals and and more so than me just standing up saying I care for my animals. It's actually going to be a bit more than that, like... This is what I do. When I, when I mark my calves, I make sure that they find their mother and we mother up and we walk them out. Or I water the yards down there so there's no dust. Or we block our mobs up before we yard up so that the calves find their mums and, and they're not as stressed as when they go into the yard. We always make sure they've got a drink of water in the yards. Well, you know, um, these are the things that will make good welfare for animals or bad welfare, if you ask me.
0: Yeah, and I think for us at the Livestock Collective, that animal welfare and the people all along the supply chain is something that we are so passionate about. That's who, that's who we represent. And we always discuss that we are sharing these stories and representing the industry so that the public understand why we operate, how we operate, why we do what we do um, and the care that we take, the priority that we have for the animals, even Put before ourselves at times, Annabelle, I'm I'm sure you can agree. But we're also placing trust that the industry is doing the right thing and fully support any movement like what you're talking about in animal welfare. Annabelle, I first met you at the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association Livestock Handling Cup, which I just want to touch on because this was initially your idea where you brought some teams together and um had a livestock handling cup that did focus on animal welfare and and teamwork in the yards um just briefly can you can you touch on that yeah it was actually an idea
1: of mine and a great friend and mentor boyd holden so we came up when we do a livestock handling course every year with boyd he's a livestock handling specialist you would call him and uh we kind of came you know Eventual, but we came up with this idea. Wouldn't it be cool if we, we had um, an event where people could get together and showcase and learn from others about great livestock handling skills, good stockmanship? So that's where it came from. And we, we, can't, we did it within our own team for a couple of seasons. We just had the, we would handle wieners and then everybody would watch and score each other and see who did the best job with, with quietening those wieners down and uh and so then and the whole idea of the livestock handling cup came from that so now lots of stations join and they come together at one spot and there's a competition about handling cattle and your stockmanship and, and your teamwork and uh there's not really any other events around like that where it just focuses solely on on the stockmanship of the skills and and learning from others and and displaying it, and also just having some pride about what we do in our industry and showcase that and
0: that's the idea of the cup. Yeah Annabelle I can say it was fantastic I was up there last year in 2021 um, with support thank you to International Livestock Exports who got me up there and I was able to do a speech and talk to everyone there but can I just say that everyone all the teams just had the utmost care for the animals everyone was just stoked to be together um and to focus on what you're saying the teamwork um, the communication and the animal welfare it was fantastic to, to see and i could tell that you know the industry is is proud and it was great to be a part of so well done and looking forward to heading up to more if i can
1: yeah and, and really it's from from little things big things grow we really hope that it will become even better than it is in the future and it might even spread across the country and and um and have have a great influence it, it certainly helps our team i find when our team come home everybody has a great deal of pride in their stockmanship before they leave when they when they come back they it's just it injects you with a positivity and pride about what you do and it, it is it's a really cool event to to be involved in.
0: i think we need one in the sheep.
1: yeah absolutely yeah we'll, we'll work on that annabelle
0: Um, Annabelle one final thing that I really want to talk to you about is just we've spoken about you know the southeast and southeast Asia and the Middle East but you just went to so many different countries through the Nuffield scholarship and I was just in awe um, reading about all the places that you've been. Now you spoke about it before about how you know families in the middle east they they come and they um they select their animal and it's just such a a great event and they have so much pride in that and it got me thinking i've had this conversation with people before who have experienced cultures all around the world but australians are, are we are we scared of death is that why in 2011 that piece that was shared on the media is that why it affects us so much are we are we too um sheltered from from death generally speaking it, it's a natural instinct to hate cruelty, yeah, and 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 what was
1: shown on that program was cruel. But like you say, there was also another element to it. There was lots of blood and and slaughter, and definitely those those countries are far more connected to their 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 food than we are at the moment, and and they live in cities, a lot of them. It's not just rural people in Southeast Asia. These are very rich q80 people they are far more connected to where their food comes from I would challenge the most Australian kids now or most Australians so but we can learn from that and it's it's only got to be a good thing isn't it that you know more about where your food comes and more about w- what happens it's, it's only got to be a positive thing
0: yeah I I agree there's some scary statistics out there about how many Americans think that chalky milk comes from brown cows and I've ran workshops all over Australia and I talk to different people that have had their own experiences with um, people that are perhaps disconnected from the industry not through any fault of their own but in sharing in connecting with them in bridging that gap. it is a large investment because as we're saying, there are huge groups who um, have a loud voice against us and they're, and they're very well-funded and very well-coordinated co- and that's where we see the, the role in the Livestock Collective and we're really stoked to be working with people like yourself, Annabelle, in, in sharing the, the good stories but also um, to complement that is actually making improvements within the industry. It's been over 10 years since you know, you you've done all of this travel. So you went to 16 countries and over 100 flights in 12 months, and the range of commodities was just incredible. Anything from peanuts to to lobsters, um, feedlots, abattoirs. you just saw so much. I want to talk about that briefly. What were some highlights? What was your biggest shock? Um, and where is the world at compared to Australia, and how has it progressed since?
1: Well, it was a while ago now. So much has changed, I think, in the world. But, look, firstly, we're a very small cork in the ocean, Australia, and we need the rest of the world and we need to understand what our markets are and what drives our markets and all of that sort of stuff if we want to do the best that we possibly can. <clears throat> and get, and there's no better way than that than, than getting out and feeling for it and being curious. You know, the, old, the good old quote, I hear, I forget. I see, I remember, but if I do, I understand. And and there's just nothing like being able to feel and do and and understand our markets and drivers and and what other producers across the world are doing. Um, You know, I think probably in in terms of agriculture, it it all comes back to this this little word I came up with called PEDS. So it's all about supply and demand across the world. And it, it's driven by four things, this little PEDS word. So it's politics and people. It's the economy and the exchange rate. It's disease. And we've seen that lately with COVID. So it could be diseases and livestock or within people. And then it's seasons across the world too. And that's what really drives supply and demand across the world for different and different things, not just livestock. Obviously, I was more passionate about looking at that, but all sorts of agricultural commodities. Um, However, there's nowhere in the world like Australia, particularly in, in the sense of like our big natural open rangeland country, there's just no one like it. And it's, it's natural and it's unique. And the product that we, that we grow up here in, in the rangelands, um, I think it has, just has a natural edge on things because it's different and you, you just can't find it in the rest of the world. <clears throat> and the scale of Australian producers generally of how many cattle, or the size of our wheat properties, or whatever we do, it's a it's a good big scale. It's efficient, and we do things well. We've got good roads, we've got good ports, and and we do believe it or not, we do have a really good stable government that that supports us. So, as a whole, we're just so bloody lucky, really, to be in this country. And um, and I think anyone would agree that has done any overseas travel, particularly in developing countries just how lucky we are and you know I feel like I have a bit of a personal obligation to make sure that I can do the best I can to to produce food for those people as well that just don't have the life that we we do have.
0: Yeah we certainly are very lucky and that just provides fantastic context I think into Australian agriculture as a whole and the role that we play so going forward, Annabelle, what do we do from here? How do we ensure market access and consumer trust?
1: Oh, look, there's all sorts of, that's a complex question, <laughs> the complex answer. But, um, you know, first of all, we've got a beautiful product. We've got a beautiful country that we're producing it from and, and we do have a beautiful product to sell. So we've got, a, we've got a great edge there. We're not very big. We're very small in the world. So we need to work together. We're not very good as producers at working together. And I always argue as much as I think that we should be working more more with New Zealand as well than we do. I don't think that we should be competing with each other in markets that we do at the moment over there. Um, We're a cork in the ocean, so we do need to think about how we, as producers, do work together more in the future. And I think this all comes back to supply chains and technology and connectivity and that that sort of thing. and and then if we want to, to hone in on our on our livestock area, I think we need to strive to have a really good, natural, safe product for a start. And that we that we do the possibly the best we can with that animal welfare-wise, and can be continually improving that and and also prove it. And there's something very different in Australia compared to a lot of developing countries, and that is. it's not just about, it's actually not just about the the importing country. There's this whole social licence now. So it's not just about us producing beef or cattle and sending it to Asia. It's also making sure that the rest of Australians give us the trust to do that. And and that comes from the fact that we've never had, we've never starved in this country or really had to think about our food security, I think. So it's amazing what, what standards that we come up with when we have a wet, wet throat and a full stomach, yeah? So we, we begin to have far higher standards of what we do. And so we, we have to accept the fact and enjoy the fact that there is a social licence out there that we as producers have to fulfil and it's a partnership between us as producers and the rest of Australia to, to be able to, to produce livestock and look after this country and, and feed people overseas.
0: I think you've summarised that that so well and we've only really scratched the surface in the um, the role that we have to play in, in maintaining our social licence because it's a lot easier and um, less expensive to maintain social licence than try and regain it once it has been lost. So thanks Annabelle and looking forward to working with you on that because the Livestock Collective will, will keep on striving for that. Finally my last question for you Annabelle, if you could get one Key message out there for everyone to hear and understand, including animal activists. What would it be? You might have already said it, but uh, do you have something?
1: I think it comes back to what drives me, and and that's as as a livestock producer, we love our animals in our country, and our purpose is is to to feed the world with a natural, safe product, but at the same time giving respect to that animal, and very importantly leaving the country. And, and you could go as far as the planet in a better state for the next generation. We've got to mix that together. We've got to look after our cattle and our, or our livestock and feed people with, gr- with really good, safe food and make sure we leave that country in a far better state for the next generation.
0: Yeah, longevity and, and sustainability. And it's great talking to producers and having trust that you are looking after the integrity of the of the land as, as well as the animals and Annabelle, thank you so much for jumping on board today. You have conducted yourself with such authenticity and integrity, which were two of your three values, and I'm sure grit as, as well, um, and the stories that you're able to, to share with us from experiences that were made available to you through the Nuffield Scholarship were just fantastic. And thank you so much for coming on board today and sharing all of your ideas. Um, really looking forward to a future uh, for the whole of the livestock industry and agriculture more broadly with you.
1: Thanks, Millie. It was a great privilege and it's been great to
0: chat to you. Thank you to our audience as well for listening. If you did enjoy this episode, please make sure that you leave a review and follow us. Um, You can also head to our social media and check us out at the livestock collective. And in the show notes, I will be putting some links to Annabelle's work. It is a really great read, so I do encourage you all to jump on board that one as well. But for now, that is it. Until next time.